This is On and Off Your Mat podcast episode 34. Real love, mindfulness, and loving kindness. My name is Erica, and I'm your host. For this episode, I had the immense pleasure to sit down with Sharon Salzberg. Sharon is a pioneer in the field of meditation, a world-renowned teacher, and New York Times bestseller author. She has played a pivotal role bringing meditation and mindfulness into mainstream America culture since 1974. Sharon is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts and has authored 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, Loving Kindness, and her 2017 release, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Acclaimed for her down-to-earth and relatable teaching style, Sharon offers a secular modern approach to Buddhist teachings, making them instantly accessible. Her writing can be found on Medium, on Being, the Mary Ash River blog, the Huffington Post, and she also offers her own podcast that she hosts, The Meta Hour, with over 100 episodes featuring interviews with top leaders and voices in the meditation and mindfulness movement. On her end, as always, I really appreciate your support and love to read your comments, so if you take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or on your iPhone podcast app, you automatically enter our giveaway. Atlada is continuing to support this podcast in their effort to ignite a community of strong women who lift each other up and is giving out once again a $75 shop card. If you want to know more, you can stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll give a bit more details and I'll also announce the winner of our last giveaway. So if you left a review, make sure to stay until the end. Many of you have asked me how they can support the podcast if they've already left a review or if they can't leave a review because they don't have iTunes or iPhones. Well, I'm now part of Patreon. Patreon is a web platform where you can donate to financially support this podcast or you can become a monthly member. Donators will get shout out on the episodes and as monthly members, you will receive exclusive content, mini shows, guided meditation, guided flows and so much more. Our first exclusive episode is about me. Thank you so much if you send questions my way. I got a bunch. And your support means a lot to me. It will help me continue to offer this content, to create this podcast. It will help me cover production costs and potentially allow me to create more episodes. You can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash on and off your mat. Right now, you have an intro video you can listen to, and the August exclusive episode is out, so you can go make a one-time donation or become a member at the $5 tier and listen to that episode about me. Okay, enough chatting. Let's get to the episode with Sharon Salzberg. I am sure you're going to feel so inspired. Hi, Sharon. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm truly honored. Oh, it's a great pleasure. As I mentioned in the intro, Sharon is a world-renowned meditation teacher. Uh, We've actually never met in person, but I follow her work. I listen to her podcast, the Meta Hour podcast, and I've been reading her book recently, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Although the book has been out for a while now, love has always been a difficult concept for me to fully grasp. So when I read this book that was full of aha moments and explanations and ways of putting things that I could really relate to. So it gave me hope and tools for the future. And I thought it'd be a great subject for us to tackle on the podcast today. How does that sound? Sounds great. Great. So Sharon, I know that like a lot of people, suffering has been one of the catalysts for your path towards finding and practicing meditation. For any listeners that don't know you very well out there, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your, your journey towards meditation? Well, I went to India when I was 18. I was, uh, at that point, I was a junior in college. Mm-hmm. And um, there was uh, the opportunity through the university to create an independent study project. And if they approved of it, 
you could go anywhere in the world, uh, theoretically, just for a year and come That's back. That's amazing. Until your final year. And I, uh, like many people, I'd had a, a childhood that was um, full of loss and disruption. And mm-hmm. like for many people, I had a family where none of this was ever really spoken about. And so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went, I read a book called Faith once and sort of about my own faith journey and in um, looking back at my life I realized that by the time I went to college which was when I was 16 um, I had lived in five different family configurations each of which had ended through someone dying or or some kind of trauma Mm. Um, my mother died when I was nine and then I moved in with my father's parents and and so on and so um, I had so much going inside and I knew I was very unhappy, but I, I didn't really know sort of the, the particular things I was feeling. I certainly didn't know what to do about them. And when I was a sophomore in college, I took an Asian philosophy course and it was in the section on Buddhism that I heard of the Buddha saying right out loud in a very unafraid, unashamed way, there's suffering in life. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel so alone. I didn't feel so marginal and so weird. And I realized, oh, this is a part of life. I'm a part of life. Mm. There were these practices that if you undertook them, you could actually change your mind. You could change the way you were living. You could be happier. And I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. And this was a long time ago. This is like 1970 at this point. Um, and I looked around, and I didn't see it anywhere. I didn't see a place to learn how to actually do it. And so I created this project, and I, it got accepted, and I went off to India. That's amazing. <laughs> Mindfulness and loving kindness have really been your life work now, and we often say that we teach what we need or that a writer writes what they need to read. Can you explain the two and why you chose to focus your attention on these practices instead of any other type of meditation? And maybe why you chose to write a book on love, particularly. I know you have other books, obviously, but this one, why were you called to write that book? Well, in many ways, the two practices I teach are, uh, they're really the two practices I learned, you know. And Mm. so uh, any change, any transformation I've been through were because of those practices. And uh, the first technique I learned was a mindfulness technique. Um, in India. So I, I, you know, I went to India through the university and kind of wandered around for a while looking for just what I was really concerned with, which was practice. I wanted to know the direct, pragmatic, how to do it kind of stuff. And uh, I finally found it in the context of this intensive 10 day retreat, which I began in on, uh, I think it was January 7th, 1971. And I had never meditated, like, for a moment by the time I was that compound, you know, through those gates. And, um, and there I was. And so the, the bulk of the practice was really mindfulness practice, becoming aware first of your breath and then your body then your emotions and so on through the vehicle and that particular technique of, of your body. And um, it was mind-blowing, you know, in every way, you know, like, It was the first time I'd really looked within that strongly. It was all in the context of a very loving energy. The things you discovered within were really not to be judged or, or condemned in some way. And mm-hmm. Difficult as it was for me, I could tell from the moment I started 
there's truth here for me. Mm. Something very important here for me. And the very end of the retreat, the teacher who was at Sengoenka introduced this other technique called loving kindness. But he did it in a very, almost like a ceremonial way of saying goodbye. And that technique, you're actually offering, um, in, in his style, offering loving energy, you can say, uh, toward yourself in the world. And I was really captivated by that. So this is more in direct um, connection to your question. I think it's very much what I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I needed that sense of um, possibility for myself. You know, and so many of us say at the end of the day, if we're evaluating the day, like how I do today, we pretty well just think of what's wrong, what I didn't do that well, the mistakes I made. And, and the practice of loving kindness is like giving a little airtime to wishing yourself well, mm. obsessing about the other side. And um, it's not to say we're imagining we're perfect or there are no problems, but um, just the proportionality tends to be so off for us yeah. in terms of what we pay attention to. So uh, that one, that technique, I instinctively felt, I really need this. This is what I should pursue. But it wasn't until many years later, um, I went to Burma in 1985, and I had the chance to do a very systematic retreat with a teacher guiding me, doing just loving kindness practice. So that was three months. And um, I came back to the States in 85 and started teaching that. Mm-hmm. And both techniques... And, and they're often both done. It's not like one excludes the other. Um, they're just designed differently and, and it's a different methodology. Um, you know, both techniques, I, I think they were certainly life-changing for me. And I think they really are in general if, you know, you pursue them, if you actually practice them. Unfortunately, what's hard for us is that we have to actually practice them. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't work just admiring it from afar so many times I've been on a book tour and somebody will come up with a book for me to sign and they'll say, I bought your book for my cousin. I could never do this. You know, <laughs> I think, well, nice for me and nice for your cousin, but what's this? I could never do this thing, you know? So uh-huh. really put ourselves out there. It doesn't have to be forever. Um, but at least try it out, make the experiment um, and see if, if it feels like it's a benefit. And the reason I wrote that particular book, um, Real Love, Loving Kindness is is the common translation of that technique of meditation where we are purposefully deepening our sense of connection to ourselves and to others. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had translators and scholars come up to me and say, just say love, you know, stop being so cutesy about it. <laughs> you love, say love, but... Uh, love is such a, as you said, you know, it's such a complex term for us. We mean so many different things when we hear or say love. Mm-hmm. Everything from, you know, I love yogurt to, uh, <laughs> you know, a real medium of exchange. Like I will love you as long as you love me in return, or I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. And, and so. Uh, so what is I, real love? Yeah, I wanted to kind of <laughs> word. So the book um, almost came out of this one line in a movie. The movie was called 
uh, dead in real life. And the line is, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Mm, Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. So it's very hard to answer that question more than love. And of course, I've been asked that question a lot. But I, I think of it as this ability that we all have uh, to connect very deeply with ourselves and with others. It's a sense of belonging. Um, it's recognizing it's correct to want to be happy and that all beings want to be happy. And um, I was really taken with the line, I think, because it matched so strongly some of the experiences I had practicing in Burma, where I realized that before some of those experiences, I had the idea very much that love was in the hands of someone else. Mm. And they could deliver it to me, in which case my life would have love, or they could take it away from me, in which case I'd have nothing. And I'd just be bereft. And I kept getting this image of, like, the UPS person standing at my doorstep, <laughs> looking at the address and saying, no, nah, I don't think so, I'm going away. I go, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> And to just begin to understand, like, no, it's inside me. Mm. People might spark it or threaten it, but it's mine, really. Which also means it's mine to tend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gives you control, but it gives you responsibility. And the idea that there's an ability there, it gives you the hope that you can learn and do better when you know better. That's right. Yeah, that's really inspiring. Um, you just mentioned that these practices changed your life. Could you give us an example on how they they did that for you? Well, you know, it's a little hard because it's been like so many years. Yeah. Like, I started when I was 18, so which was a long time ago. So who knows what my life would have been like. But um, I think that, you know, kind of the classic statement within the Buddhist tradition is that the Buddha taught loving kindness as the antidote to fear. Mm. And I would say that uh, certainly before I practiced or, you know, in many places in my life, um, fear was probably my predominant emotion or guiding emotion. You know, the actions I took, the choices I made, yeah. the I held back from taking action, all those things were so often guided by a sense of fear. I didn't know how to handle. So mindfulness um, really gives one an ability to understand our emotions differently and some space around them. Mm. Um, so in, in terms of mindfulness, I often talk about, you know, if you can sit and pay attention to the fear, as I have many times, um, not get lost in the content, not try to push it away, not think about how you have to change therapists, not, you know, mm-hmm. um, hate yourself for it or not decide to move because you can't bear it, you know, whatever. But in that period, in that moment when you're actually meditating, just sit and feel it and pay attention to the feeling. Um, what I've seen, for example, looking at my fear, is that despite the world's pronouncement, which is also, of course, true, that we're afraid of the unknown, I'm really afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. <laughs> yeah. Story tell myself, like, oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And that's when I really get going. And I've realized that even in that kind of arc of anxiety, even if it started, if I remind myself, you know, you don't know. There's space. It's like something opens up and I think, I don't know. Let's see. Um, There's a curiosity there and almost an excitement. 
Yeah. And it's like, oh, I feel, I feel okay. Cause I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, so that would be an example of mindfulness. And I think loving kindness, it's almost like it starts to replace the fear. You know, fear is our habit. Yeah. Uh, I have to someone new, I have to do a presentation. I have to like stand up in front of these people, speak, whatever it is. Um, and we are practicing loving kindness. Like many of my students, for example, who are performers or musicians or poets or some position where they have to speak in public, which of course can be terrifying. Um, they say that they'll stand there on the stage and before they start, they'll do loving kindness for the audience. Mm. And so then instead of it feeling like oh, there's a gang of people out there waiting to judge me, um, <laughs> it, it feels more like, oh, we're here together. Here we are. Yeah, that's nice. When you were answering the question before, you said something that caught my attention. You said, it's correct to want to be happy. And I actually highlighted a part in the book where you said, everybody wants to be happy. Never feel ashamed of your longing for happiness. Recall that it is your birthright. Seeking happiness is not the problem. The problem is that we often do not know where and how to find genuine happiness. And Mm -hmm. so we make mistakes that cause suffering for ourselves and others. So you wrote this. Um, What are those mistakes? How do we avoid them? So we, (laughs) you know, we can use mindfulness as a tool to find that genuine happiness you're talking about. Well, we, um, you know, we are taught so many things and we have so many habits because of what we're taught and the influences around us and um, the conditioning that we have. So uh, my favorite example these days is, you know, many of us are taught uh, basically that it's a dog-eat-dog world, you know, and mm-hmm. that you, you shouldn't help other people, that makes you weak and no one's there to help you. So just, you know, do what you need to do. You have to step all over people. It doesn't matter. Um, to get ahead, it's a dog eat dog world. And, um, I once was co-teaching this six day program and I was talking about that statement in the opening night and how, uh, you know, what a conditioning to have, you know, and how lonely it is. Mm-hmm. Competitive, but all alone. And, uh, this young woman, took the microphone and, and she was really aghast. She said, I never knew that was the saying. It's a dog eats dog world. I always thought the saying was it's a doggy dog world. Like D O G G Y D O G like puppies jumping up <laughs> in meadows, you know, and like she said, what a terrible statement. And then at the, on the last day, six days later at the closing circle, she took the microphone and she said, I've decided I refuse to live in a dog-eat-dog world. I'm going to live in a doggy-dog world. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You know, but we, we're taught about endless consumption. That'll keep you safe. That'll keep you happy. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Um, and it's interesting to look at our conditioning mm-hmm. and see. Maybe we're taught generosity is for suckers or compassion makes you weak or vengefulness is strong, and, you know, that's part of what we actually do in meditation is we get to look at, at all of that conditioning. So following blindly these uh, beliefs we have is what creates or what stops us from finding that happiness. Yeah, sadly. You, know? you address in the book another fundamental question, in my opinion. Why is it so hard to love ourselves? Does well, it have that, to do with the beliefs, those beliefs as well? I think it, it is certain beliefs. And I, I think for... Uh, for some people, it's it's very, you know, it's personal or familial the way uh, one can absorb 
an external message and, and believe it to be true. But uh, it seems to also be kind of cultural in a lot of ways, like, um, you know, not to deify Asian culture, for example, but I think it's different. I think there's a rock bottom difference in terms of what you think you're capable of, or do you have a capacity, an ability for wisdom, for love, mm-hmm. deep inside? You know, if you go underneath all the craziness, and, and certainly from the perspective of Buddhist psychology, everybody has that potential. And it's never destroyed. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to us. It doesn't matter what we may yet do. That capacity for connection, for caring, for wisdom, it's never, ever destroyed. And it certainly may be covered over and hard to find and, and hard to trust, but it's there. And, and that's a very different perspective on life mm-hmm. than um, we may have, have been brought up with. So um, that tendency toward this kind of despair about who we actually are um, is very strong in the West. Mm-hmm. And so if we have that tendency or, you know, if we have a lack of self-love, how does it affect the way we show up into the world and enter relationships with others? Um, well, that uh, is a really crucial question because, um, again, going back to the Buddhist teaching, um, when they talk about generosity, like material generosity, giving someone a gift or offering or something mm-hmm. like that, uh, it's said that the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. Mm. You know, maybe give someone a gift because we feel obliged to or because everyone's watching or something like that. But the best, the easiest, most natural kind of giving comes from inner abundance and, or at least inner sufficiency. Um, I find that very interesting because I certainly have been in other countries, say Burma, for example, where um, we were never charged any money to stay at the retreat centers because everything that we need has been offered to us. You know, every meal is an offering. It's like in Burma, they believe if it's your birthday, you don't celebrate by getting gifts. You celebrate by giving gifts. Mm. Maybe it's your birthday. So your family goes over to the monastery and they offer the food to as many people as they could afford to feed. And it was like, you know, I was there uh, largely in the 80s, and it was so poor, so incredibly poor. Yet every meal, you know, there was food, and people would come, and they'd be so happy mm. um, to watch you eat the food that they had provided. And, and then coming back here to the States sometimes, and people in general had so much more. And some people, even with a vast amount more, didn't seem to have the internal sense of having enough ever, you know, and that was very difficult then for them to be generous. And that's why studies show that the external amount we have actually isn't the determining factor. Mm. Generous we are. So, and then I, I translate that into like generosity of the spirit, thanking somebody, paying attention to them, um, wishing them well, caring, connecting, taking the time. And, I think, well, it's the same thing, really. It can't come from nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. And you don't need any financial, you know, yeah, capacity. You need any, yeah, yeah, capacity. But you need something inside because mm-hmm. you feel depleted, exhausted, overcome, shattered, despairing. 
you don't have that sense of resource inside that you can readily thank somebody else or pay attention to their situation or, or really be there for them. And so that's why it's important to build that sense of resource. Is that why I've heard you quote um, Buddha with, uh, if we truly love ourselves, we would never hurt another being. So it's the same idea. Yeah, it's the same idea. And it's also um, working from the other direction. It's realizing that if we do hurt somebody, it's like hurting ourselves. Mm-hmm. There are consequences to what we do. And you think about, oh, you know, I mean, it's another kind of gift of meditation practice. We think, oh, that's done, you know. It did whatever. I never have to think about it again. There you are meditating, and it's like, oh, it's not that done, you know. It left a residue. There's something in me that feels diminished, that feels paranoid, that feels upset, you know, that I actually told that lie. Or, yeah. Or, and you think, oh, I don't really want to go there again. Mm-hmm. So hurting someone else is hurting yourself. How does that come into the importance of the interconnectivity of us and the world around us? Like, does loving kindness and that sense of compassion, understanding and love really helps us connect and not have that desire to hurt someone else? I think that's very true. And also um, the core uh, benefit of mindfulness is said to be insight. That's why you have terms like insight meditation. Mm. Uh, you know, because if we pay attention without so many filters and without so much bias, we just see more clearly how things are and the idea of interconnectedness is actually the truth of how things are. It's not just kind of a spiritual overlay. And one of the things I find so interesting about our time is that science shows us the same thing and environmental consciousness certainly shows us the same thing. And even epidemiology shows us the same thing. What happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there. Uh huh. Can you explain how a little bit more for people that don't really know? Well, I mean, um, I mean, I think we, we just see that, you know, that cutting down a forest in some place, you know, affects the quality of the rain or another place or, mm. you know, that it, it's really kind of um, diluted to feel that everything is just contained. Mm-hmm. I can remember when, um, I think it was her, uh, no, it was actually on this particular example, it was... Um, when there was that series of events in Japan with the, um, you know, ending in, in the kind of nuclear meltdown in Fukushima. And um, I was reading some international news online and I was reading something, it was a headline in, in France and said something like radioactive material is moving across the Pacific due to fortuitous winds. Mm. And I thought, oh, maybe they're fortuitous if you're in France, you know, but they're not that nice if you're in Seattle. And and besides that, don't we believe the earth is round anymore? Like, can't it come to the sign, you know? Um, you know, this idea that we're not influenced by things going on in another place. Um, I mean, it's just revealed every day that's not true. Yeah. And it then makes us think, hopefully, you know, well... I should recognize my actions are also rolling out in other places and you know, the energy I put into things and what I'm devoted to and how I act, that's also making a difference. Mm -hmm. So there's the concept of not hurting others, the concept of 
our understanding our interconnectivity with the whole world. And then when we get one-on-one, -on -one, in the book, you talk about the you, me, and the space in between. Uh -huh. So what is that space and why should we care about that? Uh, well, I think it's, it's a um, fascinating concept, you know, that mm -hmm. uh, in our interconnectivity, um, there's the we-ness that we have we've also created. And I think that space, it, it just, I just imagine, you know, two people who are really authentic with one another and um, not in a brutal way, you know, like you look terrible with that haircut, but <laughs> you know, um, just really authentic. I have a story I tell sometimes where I was in Barry Mass, which is where uh, we have the Insight Meditation Society, which I co-founded. I was asleep. I was dreaming. And uh, in my dream, I was working in Barry Mass, um, which I was actually doing during the day as well. Uh, and somebody asked me, why do we love people? And in my dream, I responded by saying, because they see us. Mm. And then I woke up and I thought that was really good. You know? <laughs> um, you know, so that's what I mean. Like, what if that's what we have created in the dynamic between us is that ability to see and willingness to be seen. And that's a very different kind of weeness that, uh, you know, when we have secrets and when we have um, deception, shame, shame and fear, exactly, of, you know, revealing. And um, so you can almost feel it as a kind of another entity in the room. Mm. So how does like assumption will tint our capacity to be open, to listen or and to be in relationship with others? Like you just mentioned, keeping secret. We talked about shame. Is it just because you don't see the truth about the other person or there's like a lack of trust there? What's the disconnect? Well, I think the disconnect could be many different things. You know, um, if we are lost in a state of assumption, like we're not mindful enough to notice the assumptions we're holding, we won't really see the other person and, or we won't be willing to reveal ourselves. Like it's not safe. And so to say every assumption is incorrect. Some mm -hmm. assumptions are correct, but we don't even usually see them before we decide they're true um, and act accordingly. So, you know, to, so to some extent, I think it's, it's being lost in assumption, but also here too. I mean, there are tremendous habits we are taught. Maybe it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Don't reveal yourself. Yeah. Anyway, don't show any vulnerability. They'll just step on you. Or um, don't listen, you know, to what's going on in their life. It's irrelevant. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And, um, you know, so I also am kind of fascinated by what I keep reading is a growing epidemic of loneliness. Mm. And I think, well... You know, if those are your beliefs, so that's how you're making choices. No wonder, you know, we feel so alone. Yeah. So if we do feel alone and we want to cultivate a little bit more love and we come back to the concept that love is not a feeling but an ability, how do we cultivate that more unconditional, sustainable ability rather than hoping for the fleeting feeling to just appear out of nowhere? Well, that was, you know, the whole, um, my whole fascination with loving kindness meditation practice. Not to say, you know, by any means it's the only way to do it, but it's the way I have cultivated it. Um, and that's been a controversy I found in teaching so much loving kindness meditation 
in that often, you know, another conditioning we have is that there's a belief that can't be cultivated. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a loving heart or you've got a compassion or you don't. And if you don't, you're out of luck. And, mm-hmm. and that's a very Western notion. And in the East, absolutely, it's believed these, these qualities can be cultivated. That's the whole purpose of the meditation. And so uh, actively practicing it, um, I think, can clearly make a big difference. Mm-hmm. I could see that. When you started meditation, when you went to India for the first time, and even when you became a teacher, meditation was not definitely as ma- mainstream or as even accepted as it is today in the West. What's your hope for the future of meditation? Like, yeah. <laughs> where do we go from here? Yeah, it's funny. Um, Joseph Gossi and Jack Kornfield and I co-founded the Insight Meditation Society in 1976. That's when we moved into the building and we had no idea what was going to happen in terms of the interest in meditation. It's becoming so much more mainstream. And often people say to us, wow, you must have had such vision, you know, and we say, no, not really. <laughs> um, we just did the next thing, you know, or it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting idea. We said, let's try it. And actually our mantra the whole first year was we can always close in a year. You know, if no one comes, we'll just close it down. Mm. Um, but, you know, my hope is that the techniques will become more and more accessible and more people of different kinds will, will get access in, in a very easy way. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, the person who brought the book for someone else. What do you say to people that they say they can't meditate? They tried, they failed, it's not for them. Well, usually, I mean, we don't believe you, you can ever fail at meditation, you know, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's a question of the form. You know, people think, oh, I have to sit in a pretzel-like pose and be in excruciating pain. And there are so many forms of meditation. There's walking meditation, there's movement meditation, there's um, meditations that are silent, there's meditations that are more like um, chanting, you know. And so that's something... I try to point out to people, but mostly what I find is that it's the block is some idea that people have about what should be happening. Because people commonly say, oh, I tried that once, I failed at it. And then if I say, well, what happened that made you think you failed at it? And they'll say, couldn't make my mind blank. Couldn't stop my thoughts from being there. Couldn't keep anxiety from arising. I couldn't stop being sleepy. Um, mostly around the thoughts. And, uh, Our response or my response is that, well, our goal is not to make your mind blank, you know, or keep certain experiences from happening. Our goal is to change the relationship we have to each of these experiences. You know, we can have a thought that comes up and it can be, um, is the classical image, could be like a cloud moving through the sky. No big deal, in other words. Or we can take it to heart. We can build the whole self-image around and determine our future around it or write that nasty email because of it. Um, and then, you know, maybe an hour later go, whoops, you know, what did I do? Um, you know, so there are lots of different ways of relating to the very same thought. And so we want options. We want to have some choice. We want to know how it is to have some space around thinking. 
And I've heard you uh, say before that the crucial part of meditation, and I think that was for mindfulness meditation, is actually when we realize that we're not focused on the breath and it's not so much this time that we are focused on the breath or outside of our thoughts. Uh-huh. Well, that's... Uh, um, that can that's help a- people also to be like, I'm not failing at it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's a common issue, whatever technique you're using. And it's it's very helpful to understand that because people will try to measure progress. Let's say it's feeling the breath and mindfulness, but that's your, that's your practice. And um, that was actually the first, the first technique I was ever taught when I was in India. Um, sit down and feel your breath. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, what'll it be? Like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind wanders. And <laughs> to my absolute shock, it was like one breath. <laughs> and I freaked out and I thought, oh, you know, I can't do this. Um, but over and over again, I kept hearing the instruction. It's okay. You know, our minds are trained to be somewhat scattered or distracted. The important moment is after you've fallen asleep or after you've gotten lost in the fantasy to be able to let go gently and come back, let go the next time and come back and not to lose heart and not to go into a seven hour train of judgment or Mm-hmm. whatever it is, you know, that's how you actually accomplish the goal is to let go and come back and let go and come back. And that's why we say sometimes that meditation is like a resilience training. We're learning how to begin again. We're learning how to be wholehearted as we begin again. And that's, that's really like a life skill that we're, we're practicing. It's like a muscle group we're practicing that goes right into our lives with us. And, and that's, what's really important. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody could say they don't want that in their life. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to argue. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add before we finish? If there's like one takeaway you'd like listeners to leave with, what would it be? Um, I think, if you know, in this last um, conversation, part of the conversation we've been having, um, I would just emphasize a point, you know, meditation may not be for everybody, mm-hmm. but I think it's worth trying, you know. It's worth making the experiment and uh, you're probably doing a lot better at it than you think you are. That's a great way to encourage people and to finish our episode today. I will put all your info in the show notes, but in the meantime, uh, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to say hello or they want to study with you? Uh, it's SharonSalzberg.com. Great. Would you uh, like us to lead us, lead us in a little mindful moment to finish? Just sure. a, a few breaths, a, a minute. Okay. Yeah. Thank uh, you. I would say if you can uh, sit comfortably, uh, if you're in a position to close your eyes or if you feel comfortable closing your eyes, or if not, doesn't matter, leave your eyes open and just let your attention settle into your body to the place where you feel the breath most strongly, nostrils, chest or abdomen. And if you find that place, you can bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. Thank you so much, Sharon, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We have other great guests coming up, so make sure to subscribe and you won't miss any. 
Now, if you want to make my day, you want to help other people find this podcast, and or you want to get your chance to win a $75 shop card from Atlanta, all you have to do is head on to iTunes or on the podcast app of your iPhone, scroll down on the show's page and click the link, write a review. As you write your review, you automatically enter the giveaway. You don't have to do anything else. And I announce the winner on the next episode after a random draw. If you're newer to reviews and you want even more detailed instruction, check out the show notes. You'll also find there more info about our guest of today, Sharon Salzberg. And you can also visit my website for those two things at ericabelanger.com slash blog dash podcast. Our last episode was also supported by Athleta. Thank you so much if you left a review. The winner of that giveaway is iTunes user AJ underscore 34. AJ underscore 34 said, Hi Erica, I enjoyed the episode with Melissa and the insightful messages behind it. It is genuine, inspiring, and informative. I learned more about my body and love learning about the anatomy of the body in specific yoga poses. I am looking forward to your next episode. See guys, it's that simple. Thank you, AJ underscore 34, for your review. Email me, please, at erica.belanger at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram and I'll send you your shop cards. Also, guys, don't forget to visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat to donate or become a monthly member and get your hands on our August exclusive episode. One last thing before we go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba, working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us, and until next time.